Opinion Battlegrounds with Terence Fane Saunders. Brought to you by Chelgate, International Strategic Issues Management Consultants. Hello. Welcome to Opinion Battlegrounds. My name's Terence Fane Saunders and I'm Chairman of Chelgate, an International Issues Management and Strategic Public Relations Consultancy. If you've joined us before, you'll know how this works. Each couple of weeks, I'm joined by a couple of friends here in our London office studio. And together, we pick apart some of the more interesting battles being waged for our opinion, for your opinion. Our rule is we don't take sides. We're not going to be talking about who we agree with or disagree with. What interests us are the arguments and the campaigns. Who's winning them and why? Who's losing? We'll look at the techniques and the strategies, the triumphs and the disasters. And so, yes, we'll be giving praise where praise is due. But we'll also be pointing fingers. Sorry, Iowa, we're coming for you. So, joining me today are two Chelgate colleagues. First, we have our chief executive, Liam Herbert. You might say a communicator and persuader of distinction. Started his career in the BBC. I'm not sure there's anyone left at the BBC these <laughs> days, but then went on to an extraordinary career in public relations, running various PR businesses and heading the PR operations of a number of household name global brand companies. Liam is also a renowned expert in crisis management. And I might mention he was director of communications, running the global media impact for the City of London Police during the London bombings. So, Liam, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Also with us is Jamie Mungton. Now, if we're talking about opinion battlegrounds today, there are few people alive better qualified to do so. Jamie's career started as a soldier, fighting his way across a range of particularly dangerous foreign battlegrounds. Then Jamie moved into a different kind of warfare, opinion warfare, where he led some of the most advanced and sophisticated information and opinion management exercises ever conducted across hostile foreign territories. Incidentally, uh, Jamie tells me that he learned conversational Arabic playing backgammon in various souks around some quite challenging corners of the Middle East. My advice is never play backgammon with Jamie. <laughs> I never got very good, though. That's, the, that's, the, <laughs> that's what you always I'm tell the, your victim before yeah. you play against him. Oh, I'm not a shark. I wish I was. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about a number of current battles and campaigns. There's the US presidential election cranking into gear for the Democrats in Iowa. We'll have some fun with that. And then there's the race for the Labour Party leadership back here in the UK. And finally, the battle over the BBC. Claims of bias, demands to drop its license fee, the apparent hostility of the new PM Boris Johnson and his henchman Dominic Cummings. Is this the beginning of the end for this great British institution? You know, chaps, I mean, Sometimes I, I, I kind of feel that Boris Johnson has become like one of those sort of drunks you come across in a pub who is just getting into one fight after another and, you know, having sort of knocked out this chap. He says, right, who's next? You, you next? Who's next? And then he's buying around for everyone after each, <laughs> well, after right. each fight so people and, tolerate I mean, it. Before we get on to the sort of major topics, I mean, Liam, you, you were chatting this afternoon about his, his, his 
latest war against the lobby journalists. Yeah, the, the, the war against the lobby continues. And um, as we think we said last time, the number 10 have switched some of the lobby briefings to number 10 out of the Houses of Parliament, uh, which means that the lobby, which is quite a substantial number of journalists, has to trek all the way down to number 10. Yesterday, we had the, uh, the launch of the uh, what's going to happen now that Brexit is done and we, we have the deal that we had with the deal and we now need to negotiate our trade deal. Mm-hmm. Um, number 10 had the usual lobby briefing in the afternoon and then had a inner lobby briefing, which was news to quite a lot of journalists who didn't realise there was an inner lobby. And so we had the standoff with everybody turning up at number 10 into the very small um, entrance just out just to the side of the black door and they were literally moved um, kind of um, x-factor style onto the one side or the other and if your name was not on the list then they were not going to let you in and then several senior and respected members of the lobby said well you either talk to all of us or none of us and they they left seems fair enough out of curiosity are they still doing for example on january 31st boris's address at 11 p.m which he released on social media had he briefed that to the lobby before he released no. it, or is this he just yeah? So they so, so they yeah. The the other thing that number ten has started to do is is to do a little bit like Trump has and, and yeah. several other people that we've seen and the Labour Party did extensively during uh, during the Corbyn administration, which is talk directly to their audience through social media channels yeah. and as opposed Facebook, to going through middle rather man. rather than yeah. going through any kind of editorial control. I think we're going to see this more and more. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think Trump, it's also, Trump has shown it can work. I think it's indicative of sort of a larger issue in British society where, Terence, you've talk, talked about in the past, where you know, the majority of people aren't getting their news from the BBC or, or from papers, but they're getting it online through mm. Twitter and Facebook and, and social media platforms. I remember we dug out some figures last year, that, uh, if I remember rightly, that there was a survey done in the United States which showed that, this is the beginning of last year, that I think it was 20% of people, only 20% of people mm. said they were getting their news from newspapers. 40% said they were getting it from Facebook. But I mean, this, the scary thing is that the, the majority of the audience that's doing that now, me included to some extent actually, rather ashamedly, is that the majority of the public, their social media illiteracy is through the roof. And so they're not able to, and this is where disinformation, misinformation rules master. And it's, I mean... I won't go into the details of it, but there's this psychological principle that we've spoken mm. about before, Terence, called normative social influence to informational social influence. So where NSI is what we've been in for the last 50 years, where we have our established echo chambers of where we get our new source, and it's just taken for granted that they've done all the due diligence to make sure that the source is accurate, the information is right, and all that sort of stuff. But now there's such a huge distrust for people like the BBC, and the, the younger audiences, Gen Z, why millennials are going to online sources, where that sort of verification process isn't in place. So they're shunning their previous established media and they're out into this brave new world, but they don't know how to navigate it. And it's made it a lot easier to manipulate, sadly. So entirely. the manufacturers of fake news and so on yeah, can entirely. manipulate those, those echo chambers. And that's a little scary. We, we had that earlier this week with this the story that was running around that Nissan was going to be closing all its European <laughs> yeah. operations and moving to the UK, yeah. which was completely... Not, made up nonsense, but it had run the news cycle before Nissan had got out and went, hang on a minute, no one at Nissan ever said this. But a fun story. Anyway, let's turn to the BBC. Again, it does appear that the BBC was having a drink in the pub with Boris and and seems to have got on the wrong side of him, certainly. We have this strange situation and and I don't know what, what you guys think, but 
it's an interesting phenomenon at the moment to me that I think everybody thinks that the BBC is biased. The Labour Party cite all sorts of reports justifying their view that the BBC is strongly biased against the Labour Party and favouring the establishment. <laughs> then you have Boris and Dominic Cummings and, and their gang being outraged at, at what they see as the left-wing liberal bias of the BBC, and, and they're more or less wanting to, to tear the entire edifice down, as far as I can see. And it, it seems to me that, in a way, that almost suggests um, that there is no bias. I'm sure, I mean, we've all heard programmes where at the end of the programme you said, you know, that was actually really a bit strongly pro-right or pro-left wing. And I'm sure individual programmes do turn out to be this way or that. And of course, people tend not to complain if it endorses and supports their own view of life. But if, it, if it's something that they are upset about and they disagree with and they think the audience is responding in a, in a way that they don't like, then they tend to complain. Um, one of my colleagues did me a report the other day about the huge number of complaints and, the, and that number of complaints has grown. And in a way, I, I didn't even bother to study it too much because the fact of complaints doesn't tell me that there is a bias taking place. What it tells me is that there are complainers out there, and I think they're coming from both sides. I mean, what do you feel? Well, I think it's so easy to complain, everyone does. Well, on a similar report, the statistics showed that actually the, bias, the perceived bias um, was within the margin of error. It was a couple of percent either side. And I think depending which side you're on, you can find an example, like you said, of, of supporting your viewpoint or not. Like the easy one for the Labour Party to cite, for example, is that when the BBC edited the footage of Boris Johnson's interview, when asked by an audience member, does he value truth? The audience in the live broadcast laughed extensively. But then the BBC edit, they cut out and edited the laughter out. Yes, they said later that was a mistake. A and mistake, it wasn't yeah, I mean, And who knows, you yeah. know, one gives them the benefit of the doubt. In fact, there was also the intriguing thing that the ITV debate, it was interesting to me because I think that my reading of it that was that ITV had actually taken some trouble to try and get a balanced audience. And I think they had used, was it YouGov, one of the pollsters to, it was to, YouGov, yeah. Yeah, to choose the audience. I have a feeling what happened is it meant that there was a more polarized debate because afterwards, I remember there were reports saying that the audience had laughed at both leadership candidates and or prime ministerial candidates. And I actually think that wasn't quite what happened. I think half the audience laughed each time, but laughed with such vigor it sounded like the full audience. And I think you were getting both sides being laughed at because literally half the audience mm. was again each side. I think the BBC audiences, in, in my view, and this is totally subjective and, and just from listening, I've had the feeling for a number of years that BBC audiences on the whole tend to be slightly slightly left to centre, not strongly left to centre, but the sort of liberal, urban, professional type. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be reflected when you when you listen to their responses. So that, that is simply how I, I read it. But I don't sense any really strong political bias one way or the other. There's, there's a lot of um, pressure out uh, generally about the establishment and the elites and so forth, and the lack of trust in society. Although research is now showing that the, the level of trust in the various edifices of government and state and 
the, the organs have stated broadly the same as they've always been. But the narrative is that there's less trust out there, which then starts that concept, then starts people getting a bit of confirmation bias going in, going, yes, there are more complaints here, and this is not working this way, and so forth. And the BBC is finding itself in a situation where BBC News is always criticised by all sides, and they kind of take the view of going, well, if everyone's complaining equally, we must be somewhere in the middle and we're okay. You then have the BBC Entertainment side, which is particularly the... Uh, the comedy element of it, which tends to be slightly more left-wing than, than ever. Yes. Um, QED just a minute. Yes, and, it, and yeah. indeed. So, it, so it, 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 it sort of fills that narrative that you know, uh, is, is coming out that there's less trust there. And this is where uh, the new government is kind of sort of rattling, rattling their sabres with the BBC and the, the BBC's future existence. And they've res the BBC have responded there, haven't they? They've mm. axed, what is it, 450 jobs or whatever it is, yeah. and they're streamlining <clears throat> their programming in order to focus on the digital. And it's very worrying to me. Actually, I'll tell you, it, it, we don't take sides, but I'm going I'm to give an opinion here, which is that the BBC has already hurt the BBC World Service too much. The BBC World Service is, to me, one of the jewels in our crown. It is an incredibly brilliant creation. And when you listen to our other news programs in this country, they are so parochial these days. And I, I have to tell you, when I come to work in the morning, I always devote the journey to work to listening to the BBC World Service. And my word, you realize how many important things are happening all over the world that are simply not being covered by our media. And if the government allows the BBC World Service to be diminished any further. I absolutely feel that would be bad news. And I, while I'm on my, <laughs> my, my uh, soapbox here, I, I'm going to say one other thing, I think, is I also think we have become a nation of screeching complainers. And I blame social media. It used to be you were watching a television program that you didn't like the, the, the look of or whatever, and you think, I'm going to complain. So now, where's my writing paper? Where's the envelope? Then, oh, God, where did I leave the stamps? Then you've got to trot down to the post box and stick your complaint into Now you're crouched over your, your laptop, itching for the moment when you're going to spot something to complain about and whip that complaint off in moments. And I think we are turning into a nation of hungry complainers who are actually almost sometimes looking for something to complain about. And that, I think, is one of the reasons for the riding, rising tide of complaints about the BBC. But mm. I don't see that changing either, quite frankly. Yeah. As, as long as the internet is accessible, which is going to continue to be, it has to be. And it's basically human right now, isn't it, to yeah. have uh, available internet access. There'll always be a platform for, for everyone to talk and complain. But if we're messing up our institutions and so on, do you think America is beginning to mess up its institutions, its political institutions? I mean, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be chuckling about Iowa, but um, we have this extraordinary business where essentially the systems broke down and it's, it's, uh, the result is the Republicans are enjoying greatly jeering at the poor old Democrats. Iowa, really, it's about the only time that Iowa is treated as important. Uh, but it is of importance, or I think it's actually of, of, of exaggerated importance. Um, and people seem to think that Iowa tells you what's going to happen in the future, and it only does sometimes, actually. But do we really, looking from abroad, looking from, from sitting here in the comfort of, 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 of the UK where we staggered through our own general election, do we think that the United States is, is, is heading towards a, a good and balanced process and outcome to their election? 
Uh, oh God, that's a tough, <laughs> tough question to answer. I mean, if we just focus on Iowa in particular, I mean, using the technology from the very dodgy uh, named Shadow Inc. company, which is the oh, yeah. supplier, mm. the DC-based supplier of, of the app. What I found actually more interesting about it wasn't that the app failed. I think that's you know, that's going to happen, especially when it, it, when you sort of take into account the volume of people voting on an untested app. And that is the key point to me. It was untested. The app developers even had uh, offers of help from the State Department in DC saying, we'll help you test it, make sure it's cyber friendly, not cyber friendly, cyber secure, mm. um, in order to sort of stop any involvement from the Russians or whoever it might be. And they turned it down completely. Well, and I think that's an interesting I'm point. sure there will be conspiracy theories that hard at work here and people will be looking for mm. evil doing. But putting that aside, I mean, the early signs, there were a couple of sort of in, in, intriguing possible outcomes. Um, I think that uh, we do not necessarily see the winner in the winner here. Even if Sanders wins the greatest number of first votes, people say that on transfer votes, he is less transfer friendly. And that could that could perhaps alter the mm. alter the dynamic. The other intriguing one is 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 Pete Buttigieg actually coming out and saying, well, his polls are showing that he actually has won Iowa. Mm. Now, that would be a stunning shock. I mean, he's been moving up very very fast in the in the polls. Yeah. But I mean, this would be a very different kind of candidate altogether. Would, the um, just before coming to record this, Dr. Drew Manns, our, mm. our resident yeah. uh, analyst and GP. He was telling me that Sanders is currently on 27% and Warren is in second on 25%. Really? So she's yeah. she's recovered. She's uh, recovered, uh, yeah. Apparently, if you, if you believe... That's from Gallup, he was those, telling me, which yes. is quite a, a reputable... Well, we'll follow it all with great uh, fascination. To mm. me, it's an absolute delight that uh, so many of the leading candidates in the United States for the, for the presidency are um, of almost prehistoric age and it makes it makes it makes those of us who are heading that way feel really very frisky and lively i mean you know, a, there is a future ahead i mean it is quite stunning you know there's uh, uh, sanders is 78 i mean biden is 203 uh, it's uh, trump is 74 well this is right it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a incredible scenario that a country the size of the united states can't find anybody even vaguely younger but it's a, it's a, it's also a, a testament of how much money is required to run these days in the states. I, I, I will make a forecast now. I think, and and we look at this, and I, I'm seeing a pattern that is, it reminiscent to me of what happened in the early days of Corbyn's leadership. I think that the Labour Party were captured by momentum, you know, full of young, very left wing people, and they dominated the vote within. The Labour Party and Corbyn was swept to power, but it was also very apparent to really any informed watcher of politics in this country that that group weren't supported by the majority of the country. They dominated the Labour Party. And I think that you're seeing a slightly similar pattern that you have a lot of very young and rather left wing people supporting Sanders, who actually is a socialist. He is not. A member of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's extraordinary, and yet he's running. He's, he's running, which will the, which will help nomination. Trump's argument. He will invoke that sort of well, that red scare, the scare I, of socialism. I must say, if, if I if if I were Mr. Trump, I would be I would be 
praying for the success and the health of, of Sanders because yeah. I think that um, at the end of the day, Sanders would be rather beatable for that reason. I mean, he's, mm. a, he's an amazing campaigner and, and an extraordinary man. But politically, uh, when it comes to the final presidency vote, my bet is that if he is the Democratic candidate, he will find it very hard to get sufficient national vote behind mm. him. And, and Trump must be loving that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it sounds quite black and white and, and rudimentary, but Trump would have a very easy argument on his hands if he if, if Sanders got in, he'd just say, would you like socialism or would you like America like it is now with you know, his approval rating? Keep now America 40, great. Keep America great. His approval rating is the highest it's been three years at about 49% now. You know, if Sanders gets in, it's a victory for, for Trump immediately. I tend to think that's correct. Let's talk about what may be another obvious victory, uh, or is it? Uh, the Labour leadership. Um, the bookies have Keir Starmer well ahead. Rebecca Long Bailey obviously is the continuity candidate. Corbyn Mark II. Corbyn Mark II. Um, rather wooden speaker and I think a bit lacking in charisma and again I think that Boris Johnson must be seeing if he can come out and vote for her because <laughs> again I think for similar reasons she would be would find it very difficult to win the general election for the same reasons that Corbyn found it difficult she's been unapologetically endorsing everything that Corbyn stood for Liam is is the battle over it's um it's an interesting phase I mean we're with about a third of the CLPs have voted so far um, as constituents and Labour parties. So uh, Momentum gave their membership a choice of Long Bailey or on, on, on no one. Um, and 70% of Momentum came back and endorsed that view. Um, and it's, it's, and Momentum is not the youth organisation that it, it might seem to be. There's a lot of old Marxists and socialists amongst that, that grouping there. Um, the CLPs are interesting and the, and the way CLPs are voting and, and how they voted last time is, is the contrast between how they voted last time is interesting. So the number of CLPs who voted Spot Corbyn last time is diminishing a little bit. Starmer's on 144 at the moment. Long Bailey's got about half that on 60 odd. What about Nandi? I came across well, her for the first time today. And, she's and come she, into the picture in an interesting yeah. way, actually. Yeah, I quite like her from what I've mm. seen today. Yeah, she'll be the this Kendall of this yeah. leadership election. So um, she's the she's the, one of the few Bain candidates left in um, in the race. She's a, an excellent uh, Northern MP. A lot to uh, a lot to um, support there, but she's <laughs> the MP she, side. She, uh, she, la she lacks the she lacks the broader support. She was coming up and making a lot of running. Did she resign from the front bench when Corbyn did. came in? Yeah, no, she she was on the shadow cabinet. She was on the shadow, and then she resigned during her during during the tenure there. Yeah, in opposition to Corbyn or no, no, for no, other reason, okay. no, for other reasons. Well, for for reasons of yeah, for reasons linked to party policy at the time. Oh, okay. There was an interesting article by Zoe Williams uh, in The Guardian um, and making the point that we need to look at the fact that there will be transfer voting going on and that she was um, saying that rather depending on who comes second, uh, that she sees uh, actually Nandi as being someone who is quite friendly for transfer votes and that she, in a way, could uh, 
pose a greater threat to Starmer if she came second than Long Bailey would. There's, yeah, the, the, you, you have a first and second preference vote, and I, th- I can see that she would be a, a good second preference vote for quite a lot of people. You know, if, if your first vote gets, uh, as I understand it, less than 15%, mm-hmm. then you have your, your transfer vote goes across. And then uh, there are signs that were she to finish second and somehow over overtake Long Bailey, that she could be a real threat to Starmer. But so maybe it would be fun to think this horse race isn't over yet. I mean, it, it's um, uh, be rather dreary for us all to be sitting here watching <laughs> this parade <laughs> down to the wire. In any case, that's a race we'll certainly be coming back to in future episodes. Also in future episodes. We will be talking about the Climate Action Summit planned for this autumn and watching how the debate over the climate rumbles forward to that point. I hate to say it, but also the stake has not yet been driven through the heart of Brexit. (laughs) The corpse still lives. It's not dead. That debate continues. And we'll be looking at how that argument is being conducted by which side and how successful they are being, because we still are looking at a variety of outcomes ranging from something which might be described as hard Brexit, an extreme Brexit on the one hand, to what might almost be continued membership, so closely aligned would we be uh, with the European Union. On the other hand, who is going to be winning that argument? And obviously, uh, in a way, it's Europe against the UK, but there are many in the UK who will be advancing their own arguments on that. And one other intriguing little debate which is building and fascinates me, I must say, is the matter of the vegans. Where have they come from, these vegans? They sound like people from another planet. But if you walk through any major supermarket these days, you'll see rows and rows of space devoted to vegan food. and. The vegan menus are being served at things like like the Golden Globe Awards. And yet, there's research which suggests that just 1% of the population are vegan. So how are they managing this leverage? How are they managing to develop this influence? What's going on there? Intriguing battle for your opinion. And we'll be coming back to that as well. Meanwhile, I want to thank our two guests this evening. It's been a Pleasure having you both with us. So, Jamie, until next time, I hope. And Liam, also, thank you for being here. And thank you all for joining us tonight. Thanks for listening to Opinion Battlegrounds. Please subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And you can follow us on Twitter at Chelgate or email contact at chelgate.com. 